The following audio is from Grace City Church in San Diego, California. More information about Grace City Church is available at gracecitysd.com. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. So shall, he sprinkle many, so shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that, which has not, for that which has not been told them, they see. And that which they have not heard, they understand. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root of dry ground. And he, and he had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Sorry. (laughs) (laughs) And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. Uh, Father God, uh, thank you for just bringing us together and gathering us as a family, Lord, to just come and sit and listen to your word, God. I pray that today as Randall speaks, that your Holy Spirit moves from, um, through him, Lord, and that your Holy Spirit just opens up our ears to listen and hear your word, Lord, that your word really transforms our hearts and gives us, uh, yeah, just the strength to move on throughout the day, Lord. Um, in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. And now we're going to go into our week four of our Advent video. Hi there, my name is Amanda Pavich, and I wanna welcome you to the fourth and final week of Advent. And I wanna start this week by reminding us of an old hymn that we sing around Christmas time. And the first two lines go like this. Hark, the herald angels sing, glory to the newborn king. Now the gentleman that wrote that hymn was a very serious guy, and he believed that the story of God was something that needed to be shouted from the mountaintops, of course, but but he wasn't entirely certain that everybody would hear the message. So when he was writing this hymn, he was attempting to do so in a way that would appeal to as many different groups of people as possible. Now I thought that was fascinating because it's kind of like our life, right? We have a story to tell and we want as many different groups of people as possible to hear that story, right? We wanna be known as people of nuance. We don't wanna be stereotyped. We don't wanna be lumped in with big groups. And when we are misunderstood, and when we stop being able to make sense of the world around us, that, that is the time when we really need God to show up. We really need him to intervene for us and, and talk to us in a very tangible way. Now there was a woman in antiquity who felt that way exactly, and her name was Hagar, and she was a servant during the time of the patriarchs, so about 4,000 years ago. And she was a member of the unseen class. And what that meant was that when she walked into a room, you didn't necessarily need to acknowledge her presence. And it also meant that when Sarah came to her and said, you are now going to be the second wife of my husband Abraham, and we're gonna get this descendant ball rolling, she had no right of refusal. She couldn't say no. So she was automatically thrust into this love triangle where she really didn't want to be. So she acted very badly, and then she was abused, and so she ran away. And when she ran away, she put herself in grave danger because she was outside of the protection of her patriarch. And as a single pregnant woman who didn't have a lot of rights, she was just kind of out there. So anybody that came along in the middle of nowhere where she was could have just kind of carried her away and done whatever they wanted to with her. She was unseen but the angel of the Lord showed up. And this is the first time that we see the Christ figure in the Bible. And it's in Genesis chapter 16. And we know that it's the Christ figure because it says the angel of the Lord, and it's spelled like this in English, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. So anytime you see that, you know that that is the Christ right there. You can kind of insert the name Jesus and we'll be good to go. 
So the angel of the Lord and Hagar have a very pointed discussion. It's not all wine and roses, this discussion, but she is so grateful for the truth and for that deep understanding of who she is that she gives the best compliment that she can. She says, you are a God who sees me. Now, when I read a story like that or anything similar, I am always struck by the idea that it is seeming so normal for a spiritual being to be talking to a human being, right? As if there's just kind of an expectation that this goes on all the time. I mean, no one bats an eyelash, right? And that inspires me because I'm not sure that I wake up every single day with that same expectation. So this week, the final week of Advent, I want to challenge you. And I'm gonna take this challenge too. I want us to increase our expectation of a spiritual God intervening in a very physical and tangible way in our day-to-day -day life. I don't want us to get lumped in with a bunch of philosophical snobs, you know, that just sort of pass everything off as coincidence or as dumb luck. Right? I don't want us to be lumped in with people who have intellectual prejudices, who say that there's no way that there's a spiritual world that, that intervenes in our physical, natural space. That, that just doesn't happen anymore. I want us to be like Hagar, who believes that God is a God who sees us. And in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 8, it says Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And so I want that to encourage us that that same God that helped out a teenage servant girl long ago is the same God that inspired the hymn that we sing today. And that God wants to be in the right place, in the right time in your life to his glory. It's so encouraging to know that truth. And, uh, and that's the truth. He, he is with us. He is here right in the midst of our chaos and uh, the craziness of life. Uh, this morning, welcome to Grace City. My name is Randall. I'm uh, one of the pastors here, and I'm excited that we're going to be able to continue this series in Advent. Uh, this is our uh, last week before Christmas, and uh, so we've made it this far, and we've been going through this series, uh, Jesus in Every Story. And next week, we've got our first Christmas Eve service, uh, 5 p.m. here, right here. So invite some friends out if they're neighbors. And, and just like Amanda said, um, this is an opportunity to share the good news of Jesus. And people are open during this time. So that's what we want to do is to invite people in and say, hey, we're a family. Come join us. Uh, last Sunday, I just want to give an update. We had our Giving Sunday. It was exciting. And uh, there were two initiatives that happened. Uh, the first one was that uh, we wanted to raise $15,000 for a church plant in Loja, Ecuador through Stadia and Compassion partnering together. And so this is, we, we are a church plant. We've been here for a little over a year and we want to help plant a church. Isn't that exciting? Yeah. We want to be a part of something that's bigger than ourselves. And so we, we don't want to just stop here. And so that was one of our initiatives. The second one was to collect toys and clothes for refugees here in San Diego. And I don't know if you saw the table last week, but it was filled. And I got a sweet message from Pastor Silas uh, thanking uh, Grace City and uh, just our partnership with Redemption Church to coming together to be able to make this happen for them. I'm telling you, this was a huge blessing. And we're talking about people that are unseen. These are some of the people in our city that are very unseen. We pass right by them. And this is an opportunity to share the gospel, the good news that God sees. And so uh, Pastor Silas was so excited, and uh, they're going to be doing the distribution on Christmas Day. Isn't that awesome? So that's going to be happening. So praise God for that. Um, and so I want to give you the update on how much we raised for Ecuador. So the total amount that we were able to collect was $8,732. Praise God, right? That's awesome. $8,732. And um, I want to share something with you. One of the things that we've done from the beginning of Grace City is uh, we give a tithe towards church planting. Uh, 
And so we set a tithe aside. So 10% of all the local offerings that come in, uh, we set aside for church planning. And 5% is we get to choose what we want to do with that. We get to say, okay, we want to use this for a church plant here or there, whatever. And, and this, is, this is cool. So the amount that we had in that fund is $6,397.40. And so the total amount that we have all together is $15,129.40. So by God's grace, we have the $15,000 to be able to send to, to this church plant in Ecuador. And uh, he did it. He did it, right? Praise God. And so I just want to take a minute and just thank God for what he's done. Um, he sees us. He sees what, uh, what needs to happen in this world, and he says it's going to happen. And he gave us exactly what we needed. So let's, let's praise him for that. Uh, thank you, God. Thank you, God, that you see the people that are hurting. Uh, you see the people who are distant from you. And what you've done is you draw close. You draw near. You draw near to the brokenhearted. You draw near to the hurting. You, you draw near to the poor. And uh, Father, I thank you that there will be a church planted in Ecuador because of your grace on us. And so Lord, thank you that collectively we could come together to give and uh, to be able to see what which, which you're going to do with this and that we get to be a part of it. So Lord, it's, it's all because of you. So we give all glory and praise to Jesus. We pray this in his name. Amen. Awesome. That's great. I'm excited. So uh, today, uh, we're going to be continuing our series, Jesus in Every Story. And uh, what we've been saying from the beginning is that the Bible is all about Jesus. It really is. It's, it's all about him, right? Like, so many times what we do with the Bible is we come to him and we say, well, well, where am I at? Where's my story? Where, where, where do I fit into this? But really where you need to start, where the starting place is, is Jesus. It's him every time. So that's what we want to do is we want to get to know who Jesus is because he's all through scripture. And uh, David Murray says this in the book Jesus on Every Page. Even though every text does not name or refer to Jesus, he is implied in every text since the events and people of every text are part of his plan of redemption. Right? It, it's all pointing to Jesus in some way or another. And so one word we commonly use around Grace City is the word the gospel. And the gospel is the way that we can see life. And, and it's the Jesus lens, right? It's the, it's the what Jesus has done for us lens that we can look through the world uh, through. And, and what it means is good news. Now, I just want to ask you for a minute, like, how much good news do you get in your everyday life? A lot of it is bad news, right? Stress, anxieties, things that are coming up, what's next, all of that, the pressure. But the gospel is good news, it comes in and tells us, here, here's not what you have to do, but here's what's been done for you. Here's what God has done for you. He's come after you. He's pursued you. And so I want you to know this. Jesus is the gospel. He's the good news that we get a God who comes to us. And today we're going to study more about him in Isaiah 52, 13 uh, through 53, 4. And uh, the message is this. Jesus through the chaos. Jesus through the chaos. Now, why does this time of year feel so chaotic to many of us? Uh, deadlines, vacations, family, gifts, gadgets, recipes, prepping for guests, checklists, running from one place to another, the expectations building more and more. Does me just talking about it stress you out? It's much like Katherine Heigl, actress, says... Uh, I've created a chaotic life, and then I get on edge because of it, right? It's like we, we create this chaotic life, and then it's like, oh, no, what am I going to do? It just puts us on edge. All around us, we feel the pressures that will create chaos in our lives. And so my prayer is that today, through this message, we'll be able to have God just wake us up a little bit. Just to, to get us to remember, what does this mean? What, what is this all about? The chaos during this season will make us feel like the Grinch if we don't watch out. We'll be the Grinch. And uh, 
at the end of Dr. Seuss's book, How the Grinch Stole Christmas, here's what it says. It says, then the Grinch thought of something he hadn't before. What if Christmas, he thought, doesn't come from a store? What if Christmas perhaps means a little bit more? He had a moment. He had a realization. Right, like in all the chaos and all the things that you thought it was about, there was a moment where it, it just like, it became real. His eyes were opened. It was about something more. And so that's what I'm praying that God will give us today is that we, we, we wake up for a minute and realize this is about so much more. It's in the chaos. We, we find what my friend Sean told me a few weeks ago, how the Christ stole Grinchmas. Right? Like how the Christ stole Grinchmas. That's what this is about. It's Christ coming in, entering in, and saying, you know what? I will answer all the things that, that you have in your life and say, I'll calm you down. You don't have to fall into the chaos anymore. We need Jesus. We need him. In many ways, the world is scrambling for answers right now to the madness, aren't, aren't we? It's like, uh, what's, what's the answer? And one of the trending answers right now, it's very popular, it's very trendy, it's very hip, is to say, you know what, in all of the chaos, what we need in life is minimalism. I need simplicity. I need minimalism. Right, so it's like this popular thing. Movies are coming out. Films are, you know, it's just like, oh, wow, everything is minimalism. Minimalism is a lifestyle that rejects the consumerism of our culture, which is good, right? Like we don't need all the stuff that we're being sold. But many times, uh, like anything, this, this type of lifestyle or, or whatever, it, it becomes a gospel for us. It becomes the good news. It says, well, this, this is the way I need to live. This is the way I need to be. And minimalism becomes the all-consuming answer for life. But there was an article written recently by a guy named Kyle Cheka. It's for the New York Times Magazine, and it's called The Oppressive Gospel of Minimalism. The Oppressive Gospel of Minimalism. Here's what he says. He says, there's an arrogance to today's minimalism that presumes it provides an answer rather than, as originally intended, a question. What other perspectives are possible when you look at the world in a different way? What's possible? Is there a different way to life than the way that we're living it right now? Right? But it's, it's like, okay, well, is minimalism the all-inclusive answer? Like, I just need to get rid of all my stuff. I need to stop buying stuff. Part of it. That might be part of the answer. But it's not the whole answer. See, people will try to provide answers, but what we discover is that we ultimately find that it will be an oppressive gospel. It'll, it'll, it'll make us feel like I, I'm not living up to the standards. And what it is, it's very one-dimensional. It becomes a pat answer. And what we really need is something more holistic, more nuanced, more multidimensional to help us in the chaos. And so the Bible offers us a place to start. It offers us a place to start. It's not, it's, it's not like, okay, here's another idea to add to your list. He says, start with a person. Not an idea, a person. You need a person in your life more than you need another idea. And today's scripture points us to a person and says, behold. Behold him. Right, so Isaiah 52 verse 13 starts out like this. It says, behold Look upon, gaze upon, behold my servant. Who is this servant? It's Jesus. And what's it say? That he will act wisely, he shall be high and lifted up, and shall be exalted. Like many times in the chaos, what we do is we actually live unwise lives, don't we? We, we make regrets. We say, man, in the chaos and all the mess, I've like messed this up or that up, or I haven't met this expectation. But there is one who lived wisely, always. He did it right all the time. And it's like Alec Mateer, who, who's a commentator on this text, says, he says, the command to behold brings us into the realm of accomplishment. Watch the servant and what he did. That's what it's about. Like when you're in the midst of all the chaos of life and all the things that you have to do, it says, hold on, for a second, if you would just behold, behold, 
Look, gaze upon, see the servant, the perfect one, the one that would come for us. You see, Isaiah wrote this 700 years before the coming of Jesus. But what we know is this, is that the good news of Jesus is just as good in Isaiah 52 as it is in the New Testament. And for a people that were wrestling with and saying, okay, when's God going to come? When's he going to save us? They needed to behold that God was in the business of doing good. This beholding is seeing good news, not about collecting good advice. Because what, what we usually do is we say, well, I need to collect more good advice into my life. And I need to add it to my collection of stuff. But what God says is, no, I, I want to give you good news. I want to give you a pronouncement that you are, actually already have what you need. You have it all right there. It's about taking in what God has done, not being bogged down by what you can do. And it, what it will do is it will settle you in the chaos. See, the whole message of Christianity is wrapped up in one word, done. And so, living under the banner of Jesus and saying, it's done. It is finished. That's the message of Christianity that makes it different from every other religion in the world. And so today, as we behold Jesus, I hope you hear God saying, put down the checklist. Put it down for just a minute. Remember what this is about. So what does it look like to behold Jesus in the midst of the chaos? And so our text is Isaiah 52, 13 uh, through 53, 4. And um, Isaiah's prediction here gives us three observations as we behold Jesus in the midst of chaos. Gives us three observations of really what we should look at and see as we look upon Jesus. And so it's beholding this. I'm going to give you all three up front. Uh, it's beholding his suffering. It's beholding his simplicity. And it's beholding his substitution. Suffering, simplicity, substitution. And so, you know, I, I, I love the three S's. It's like, S, S, you know, I just, I just love it. So, help you with your notes. But beholding his suffering. Beholding his suffering. So where does, where does that come in? Well, look at verse 14. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. So Isaiah starts with suffering. And as you and I enter into this world, what, what we enter into a lot of the times is suffering, right? Suffering. I mean, think about the whole process of how we came into the world. There's suffering that happens. And so where it starts, and where Isaiah wants to start with the coming Messiah is, you know what, there is suffering that's a part of it. And what we find is that Jesus came into the world like you and me, a baby. And he left the world so beaten that we couldn't recognize him. Really, where Isaiah starts is a, is a pretty gruesome scene. He speaks of Jesus and, and the Messiah that was coming as really if it, it already happened. He's giving us a visual that really we don't get in the New Testament text. When he gives us this insight, he says that Jesus was beaten so badly that he didn't even look human anymore. Again, commentator Alec Matier says about this verse, he says, the servant's suffering brought such a disfigurement that those who saw said not only is this he, but is this human. Jesus was marred so badly he didn't even look human anymore. What beholding Jesus should do for us first is it should really shock us. It should shock us. The, the Hebrew word shamem uh, is to be appalled, stunned, stupefied. It should make us uneasy and say, this is wrong. That God would come into the world and face such suffering. I remember I was driving, 
down the highway. Um, I was a youth pastor for eight years, and um, it was a larger church, and you know, so we had like multiple services, and I remember coming for one of the services, and I was driving on my way in, and there was always like a, a path or a way that most people off the highway would come to get to the church. And as I was driving, um, and at a stoplight, I saw to my left, there was a, a homeless man, face down, on the ground, with a couple of bottles next to him. And he was, I could see that he was, he, he had to have been like um, seizuring. Something was happening. And I saw some cars that were in front of me, and some people were looking at him, kind of giggling a little bit, like, oh, this guy's getting what he deserves. You know, he's on the street drinking, all of those types of things. And uh, I pulled my car to the side. I got over. And this was right around Christmas time. And I just checked and s to see if he was okay and just kind of lifted him on his side. He couldn't speak or anything. And I seen he, was, he threw up all over the place and just put him on his side, called the police. And then my friend was on duty that day. He was one of the officers there. He came um, and he helped and he got this guy what he needed. And uh, he came up to me a couple days later, and I asked him, I said, How, how's that guy doing? What happened? He says, you know, if, if you didn't do what you did, that guy would have died. He would have died that day. And the thing that was disturbing to me, I think because, you know, I was driving, it was, was like, how many of us just drove by? just drove by, like there's this guy on the side of the road, like, okay, maybe in our minds we could, we could say, well, maybe he deserves it, or any of those types of things, like that, that you know, he's drinking, he's, he's, he's on the side of the road, so it's his fault. Like there's some rationalization in our mind that, that it's okay. But what it should do is shock us to the point where it says, what are we doing? Because some of us were on our way to church, right? To church. That should shock us. That should be disturbing to us when we see suffering. But when you see the suffering of Jesus, what we find is that he was suffering and he was innocent. He was completely innocent. And so it should shock us even more at a deeper level to our core in saying there's a suffering that the, the Messiah, the King, was going to face that he didn't deserve? Jesus' suffering is God's way of saying, stop the chaos. Stop the madness. It should stop us in our tracks and say, is this worth it? Like everything that I thought was worth it, like is this worth it? And beholding Jesus' suffering allows us to really look deeply into our own suffering and we can be real about it. We can be real about it, like in this world, that there is, there is something wrong. There's something wrong in this world. It's, it's not everything that we're sold. This time of year being any of that stuff, it's just not. So we can be real about it. But we can also know, secondly, that Jesus suffered infinitely more than I ever will. Like I can keep moving forward in life because Jesus faced a suffering that I'll never have to go through. I'll never have to face. And so that's the first point of the chaos is just stopping in our tracks and saying like, look at the servant, look at how he suffered. And it is shocking. The second point is the simplicity of it all. Right, the, the simplicity. So um, it goes in next, and it starts out in verse one. Who, who has believed what he heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? And so first it's just saying like, you wouldn't have guessed this is the way that God would come to us. You wouldn't have guessed that he would have come in this type of, of mess and chaos and all of that. You, you wouldn't have guessed that God would come like that. But secondly, there's a simplicity to how he came. And, and so look at what it says in verses two and three. 
For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look in him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Do, do you know what kind of way that Jesus came? He came very simply. What this verse tells us is that before Jesus suffered, he was completely unimpressive. Like, nobody looked at him and says, yes, this is the guy I want to hire. Look at what it says in these verses that it tells us. It says, he had no former majesty. He had no beauty about him. He was despised. This word despised, it says that at the end of verse 3, he was despised, we esteemed him not. This word despised means to be taken lightly, made light of, to be laughed at. Right, like have you ever walked into a place and, and people were like, oh yeah, you're the person? You know, yeah, be, some of you come into Grace City and you're like, well that's a pastor? <laughs> like, isn't he a teenager? Didn't he just get out of youth group? Like, what, what's this guy doing? You know what I mean? Like, totally unimpressive. Can't grow a beard, nothing. Just like, who is this guy? Right? And that's just the reality. That is the world we live in. But Jesus came into the world, and he chose to be like that. He said, I'm going to come in in a way where they're not going to be looking at me, drawn to me because of my appearance, because of what I have, any of those things. He came poor. He came in an unimpressive way. And uh, it's kind of like my friend Byron says. He said, you know, Jesus came, and he was basic. He was basic. That's what Byron tell, told, tells me, you know, he's basic. Jesus did not come with a resume saying, look at me. Jesus did not enter the world like many of us would have chosen to. I mean, think about how you would have chosen to come in. You're like, man, I'm, I'm going to be awesome, be amazing. When people look at me, like, great. Jesus did not sell himself to us. He didn't sell himself. He didn't sell out. Uh, Timothy Keller writes this. He says, when you sell yourself, when you're promoting yourself, when you're doing interviews, whatever you have to show people in your resume is an indicator of future success. He said, don't you do that? People are looking for predictors. Look at where I went to school. Look at what I've done. Look at my talents. Look at my scores. Look at this. Look at that. These are indicators of future success. Well, I want you to know Jesus had none of them. None of them. He didn't have looks. He didn't have money. He didn't have connections. He didn't have credentials. He didn't have cultural power. Nothing. He was utterly unimpressive. That's the second point. So Jesus came, he suffered mightily, but he also came very simply. What this tells us about Jesus is this, that when he came simply, he's inviting us to come simply to him. You don't have to have a resume. You don't have to have your life together. Like one of the biggest lies and temptations that we fall into is this, that I will not come to God until I have my life together. Until I have it all together, then that's when I'm going to come to God. Do you want to know the truth about that? You will never have it all together. You will never clean your life up, right? Like you might, maybe on the outside or whatever, but you will be a mess on the inside. You'll never have it. And so Jesus says, hey, this is how I'm coming to you. Simply, unimpressive, Me. I'm not here to convince you to come in a way where it's like, oh, I'm going to be drawn to you because of your good looks. No. Jesus says, come to me without reservation, simply as you are. And I'll clean your life up. Isn't that the gospel? Isn't that good news? That today he could love us in the midst of our mess and who we are? Simply? Jesus says, approach him like that. And the last is this. Um, it's sub substitution. Substitution. Um, so it says, surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, spitten by God and afflicted. 
This verse isn't just saying that our sins and sorrows were merely put on Jesus. What it's saying is this, that Jesus came and he lifted them off of us and put them onto himself. He made a decision to say, I'm going to lift the burden off of you and place it on me. I'm going to be your substitute. Right, like, think about the way that we think about uh, Jesus and, and what he's done for us. Do you think of him coming in and saying, I'm subbing in for you? What this is, it's, it's to understand the cries of David in Psalm 38, 4. For my iniquities have gone over my head like a heavy burden. They are too heavy for me. In the midst of the chaos, have you ever felt like that? Like, I am in over my head. I can't do this anymore. God, help me. I need a substitute. I need someone to tag me in to carry this for me. Jesus is saying, I'm the one. I'm the substitute. I'm the one that's coming for you. Trade places with me. That's the whole gospel message is that God came and said, I want to trade places with you. I want to take on your sin and I want to give you my life. I want to die the death that you deserved and I want to give you freedom. Go in peace. Do you feel that this holiday season? Do you feel that, that freedom that only God can give you, that he can come into your life and say, I'm your substitute. Look at me. Behold me. See, what's the, the best way for you to experience God's love? It's by seeing Jesus' sacrifice for you. I've got three kids. And uh, my oldest, one day I remember um, I was with him and then my middle daughter who's uh, four years old, and my oldest is six. And one of the things that I've taught uh, my kids from really the beginning is this word grace. And so one of the things that they do is, you know, and it's time to get spankings or anything, they're like, grace, 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 grace. <laughs> like, Please, don't. <laughs> you know, and sometimes the grace means that they do, they still need to get a spanking. Like, that's the best grace I could give them. It's like, hey, you need to be redirected here, right? And so, but... I remember the day when my daughter did something. She, she like decked my, my son, like punched. You know, she, she, she's, she's tough, man. She is tough. And so she goes up to him. She just decks him. And I say, L, daddy's got to discipline you. And she's just crying. No, 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 daddy. Please don't, 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 don't. And, um, and I remember my son saying, Dad, don't spank her. Give her grace. Give her grace. Please. And this is what he says. He says, spank me instead. Spank me instead, Dad. I'll take it for her. And do you know my daughter's response to him? She fell to his knees and said, I love you. I love you, brother. And she's kissing, you know, kissing him. And we don't have it all right as parents. But one of the things I want my kids to know is what it means to have grace and sacrifice and love and that my son would sacrifice himself for his sister is really the substitution that when we look at Jesus and we behold him and we say, that's what he did for me. He substituted himself for me. And, and, and it isn't a burden anymore of like, I gotta love God, but it's like you fall to your knees and you say, God, like, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. And like it says in the book of Psalms, it says, kiss the son. We kiss the son. We kiss him. We bless him. It's a substitution that changes our lives. And so what are some ways, some takeaways of how we can behold Jesus through the chaos? Beholding the Son through the chaos. The first one is this. Be captivated by what he's done. Be captivated by it. This is hard. 
It's a hard one. Like what, what captivates your imagination? What captivates your heart right now? Uh, is it all the stresses of life? Is it, is it the chaos that captivates you? This is hard. But it's redirecting our attention to the sun and saying, God, I want to allow the gospel to sing deep into my heart. I want it. I want to know what he's done for me. I want to know it in a way where I fall to my knees and say, thank you, God. It's the greatest gift I could ever have. And what that is going to take is some time. It's going to take reflection. It's going to take space to really reflect on what the Son has done for us. The servant of the Lord coming just to meditate on a verse like it says in Psalm 1. He says, I, I meditate on your, 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 your commandments day and night. Let's be honest. Who in this culture is meditating on God's commandments day and night? But if we for a minute, just would, it, it doesn't start there, right? So it's like, it doesn't go from like, not meditating at all on, on God's commands to like, I'm instantly David. You know what I mean? Like, it doesn't happen like that. But it's just saying, Lord, I want that. I want to be captivated like that. I want to have a heart like that. And really, that's how you know you're a Christian. It's like when, when, when things change from like have to to I get to, you're like, man, I really want that in my life. Do you know who that is telling you those things? God. He's inviting you in to be captivated by him. It's about what he's done. And so, what's the best way to start your day? Is it by what you need to do? Starting with the checklist. I mean, I know how it is. It's like you have the phone right next to you as you wake up, and it's already telling you what's on the to-do list. But maybe replacing that with the word of God and saying, let me start with this. Let me start with what's been done. Today, I'm not gonna wake up to the craziness, but I need, I need this today. And so it's just replacing what's there and saying, okay, I'm gonna start my day like this. Because I need to rest in, in what he's done for me. I, and that's how you'll be captivated by it. Um, there's this book called uh, What's Best Next. It's uh, how the gospel shapes how you get things done. It's written by this guy named Matt Perman. And um, I think it's a really helpful book. And one of the things he talks about at the beginning of the book is he says, you know, he talks about William Wilberforce. And Will, Will, William Wilberforce was an uh, English politician. He was a philanthropist. He was a um, leader of a movement to eradicate the slave trade. I mean, dude did a lot of stuff. But one of the things that uh, was the key as he breaks down his life to how he got so much done was it says that he rested in what God had done for him first. He didn't put that pressure on himself of this is all the things I got to do in the midst of the chaos. Because he lived in a pretty chaotic time, right? To, I mean, abolish the slave trade. During that time, we're so ingrained in the way that life was lived but he says, I, I, I need, like, the only way I can accomplish anything in this world is really to rest in what Jesus has done for me first. And so really, that's how he says, that, that's what Wilberforce points to. He says, that's how I got things done in this world, was, is Jesus' justification of me. That he made me right. And that I don't have to prove anything. I don't have to try and prove with a resume of all the things I got to do. But just know ultimately that everything's been done and I get to enjoy God and then I get to do great things. I get to go out in the world. So I mean, isn't that the place where we really need to be? Because that's uh, first how we are captivated by what's been done. And, and that's really what it means when it says, behold my servant. Behold him, like he's done everything for us. Uh, the second is be shaped by suffering. Here's the thing. Many, many of us don't expect suffering in this world. And, and then we look at a, a suffering Jesus and we say, well, how does that work out? How does that work out, right? But Jesus actually invites us into that life and he says, you will suffer. He says, you're going to have to pick up your cross daily and follow me. And so once you jump into the Christian life, it's not like 
all suffering goes away. But here's the, the beautiful part. The difference is that God can use the, sh- the suffering to shape us. Right, like you're not going through the suffering just because it's a chaotic world. Just because like it says in um, Forrest Gump, you're just floating around accidental-like. I'm sorry, but that's not how God has shaped this world. But he actually has intentions and things that are happening all around us that says, I will shape you through this and make you more like my son. Nothing is wasted with God. Uh, Frank Peretti says it like this in The Wounded Spirit. He says, God does not waste an ounce of our pain or a, deep, or a drop of our tears. Suffering doesn't come our way for no reason. He seems efficient at using what we endure to mold character. You're not going to understand everything. You're not going to understand the pains of this life. You're not going to understand the chaos of this life and say, yep, that's why and all this stuff. Because maybe someday you get there and it's like, why did this happen? You still don't know. You still don't know. But the thing is that we know that God can use that to shape us and to mold us. And one of the things, you know, like the first questions that we ask is why? Why did this happen? And really what we follow it up with a lot of times is I don't deserve this. I didn't deserve this. But when you behold the son through all the suffering that he faced, he's the only one that really didn't deserve it. He really is. Like he didn't deserve this. Right? He, he didn't deserve to be beaten so badly that we couldn't even recognize him. He didn't deserve it. But then he gets to give us something that we really didn't deserve the whole time. Grace. Grace. Suffering leads us to grace. It leads us to his goodness. It leads us to this place where we say, you know what, God? You didn't deserve this. So thank you for giving me what I don't deserve. Life in you. Life in you. It humbles us. The next is that we can be freed through simplicity. We can be freed through simplicity. The life of Jesus teaches us that you don't have to keep up with the Joneses. You don't have to build a resume. You can just be free to to live life. You don't have to be caught up in the comparison traps anymore. You and I don't. We don't have to live that life anymore. And so, yes, in the Jesus life, there will be people who say, well, why, why'd you do this? Or why'd you do that? Or why aren't you doing this? Right? Like, why aren't, you, why aren't you buying this huge thing for your kids or whatever? There'll be people who say that. You're supposed to do that. You're the parent. That's the good parent does. But the Jesus life actually invites us into the simplicity of, you know what? I get to share the greatest gift ever with my kids. It's Jesus. And they might not get it now, but they'll appreciate it more. That, that's, that's, that's the hope, right? That we'll be, we don't have to keep up and just say this is our lifestyle. Because you know what? It does get cluttered. It does get messy. It does get to this point where you say, man, there's just so much stuff. But living the Jesus life actually gives us the freedom to say, you know what, we can actually live in simplicity and be okay with it. Because at the end of the day, it's all about God. It's all about Him. And if that's what I can go through this Christmas season and know, then that's the best thing I can have. It's the simple fact of this is what it's about. Um, The last one is this, be fulfilled through self-sacrifice. Be fulfilled through self-sacrifice. And, 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 and that's what Jesus is doing here for us. That's what he did. He came and he sacrificed himself. He was our substitute. And so what, 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 what happens is when, when you come into that type of life, you actually get to experience the joy that God gives us through really the upside-down kingdom. An opposite way than the way the world lives. Matthew ten thirty nine says this. Whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. 
You want to find your life? It's going to be saying, you know, this time, this season, all this stuff, it's not about me. It's not about me. In the midst of the chaos, in the midst of, I thought they were going to get me this gift. Not about me. We can let it go. And we can actually be a gift to others. That's what Jesus invites us into. C.S. Lewis says this in Mere Christianity. The principle runs through all life from top to bottom. Give up yourself and you will find your real self. Lose your life and you will save it. Submit to death, death of your ambitions and favorite wishes every day and death of your whole body in the end. Submit with every fiber of your being and you will find eternal life. Keep back nothing. If you let it go and you put it into God's hands and you sacrifice it before him, you'll find the life that Jesus came to give us. The good news life. And so today, behold, see, feel. Why did Jesus jump into the chaos? Why did he face extreme poverty? Why did he face suffering? Why did he live counterculturally in this world? Why did he absorb the pain of life? Why did he do it? For you. For me. He did it for us. Do you see Jesus absorbing the chaos for you? Because that's what this is. This is madness. This text is crazy. It's chaos. But the Son of God came to absorb the ultimate chaos that you and I could have never faced. He sacrificed himself. And because, and when you see that, he will calm your heart. He will help you to press forward through the suffering. He will help you to see that consuming more of this world isn't the answer. And he will make you more like him. Because that's the goal, is to become more like the son. That's what Jesus came to do. He sacrificed himself. He substituted himself so that we could find grace in the midst of the chaos. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for surrendering and sacrificing yourself. <clears throat> this picture that we see in the book of Isaiah is not for the faint of heart. It really is um, an intense scripture that should shock us, but it's for a purpose. It's to get us to see a Savior who loved us that much who loved us that deeply, that he would jump into the storm of this world and into the storm and the chaos of our sin and say, I'll take it. So may we adore, may we love the Son. May we kiss the Son. Thank the Son for all that he's done. Thank you, Jesus. We pray this in your name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this resource from Grace City Church. If you found this helpful, feel free to share it and enjoy more resources at gracecitysd.com. Grace City Church exists to equip people with the gospel for everyday life.